Cut, and this is The K-Cut. My name is James. I'm a content creator. I produce and release music under the A-List Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast. I'm part of the Films Fatale writing team, and my main interests include no-budget cinema and 70s cinema. I'm Rachel. I write for Films Fatale. My specialties are international cinema, the golden age of Hollywood, and lost movies. And I'm really glad we don't have to talk about the Oscars for another year. Especially something about the Oscars. One particular thing. Never again. You don't have to worry, folks. Um, my name is Andreas. I am the creator of Films Fatale, and I'm also one of its primary writers. I adore art house and international cinema and everything in between. So, uh, welcome back to another episode of not just the K-Cut, but another edition of the Cinematic Smorgasbord. So, if you are new to this, what we do is each month we recommend each other a film of our choosing. Um, as we have just detailed, we each have some crossover as to what we like, but we also have a lot of, you know, signature tastes. So this is our way of allowing our fellow co-hosts to experience a little bit of what we like. Uh, furthermore, we pick a collective pick of something that we have never seen before, uh, all three of us, and we invite you listeners at home to watch this collective pick. Uh, this month's pick is The Sterile Cuckoo. We'll be getting into that in the second half of the episode. Otherwise, we invite you to check out our individual picks as well. And we're going to be going to this uh, pretty much straight away. So uh, who wants to go first with what they were recommended? I'll go. Okay. okay. Uh, what were you recommended, James? Uh, yes. Rachel assigned me the Hal Ashby film, Being There, starring Peter Sellers. One of my all-time faves. This movie was insane. It's so it stars Peter Sellers as a character named Chance, and uh, he's a simple minded middle aged guy. You know, he, he lives in a wealthy person's house and he spent his entire life tending to the garden. And then when the old guy dies, you know, a lawyer comes over, asks if he has um, any claims against his client. And because he's never left the house and only knows anything he knows based on TV. He naively says no, even though this person was his benefactor his whole life. And so he's forced to move out. And it's just this kind of like escalation of events to where it's just almost surreal where he ends up because nothing bad happens to him, which is the crazy thing. He just ends up in all these bizarre scenarios that just constantly keep getting more outrageous as time goes on. And then he ends up at the house of, um, I forgot what the guy is, but, um, I think he's like a big rich guy, basically, like a Warren Buffett type, something like that. Yeah, uh, him and his wife kind of take him in, and uh, they just love him, even though he's just oftentimes, like, he'll ask, he'll get asked questions, and something just seems nonsensical, but they seem to find meaning in it. He ends up meeting the president, and it's just this whole strange series of events, and the entire time, Peter Sellers keeps the same energy for the entire film. There's no other emotion other than... I don't even know what to call it. Like pleasant. Like he's pleasant all the time. Yeah, he's he's very, you know, he's a nice guy. He's just he's just happy to be alive and he's obsessed with television and yeah, that was quite a performance. I don't know how <laughs> I don't know how you pull off a performance like that for an entire movie. Actually during the credits there's a blooper and he can't hold it together through one scene just cuz oh, he yeah. just can't keep I the energy. <laughs> But yeah, no, it was it was so interesting. Yeah, uh, I was really hoping you'd enjoy it because it's so satirical and 
Um, one thing I love is all the insight it gives us into 70s television, because the character is constantly watching television, and its impact on the world, you know, because he can speak in basically little sound bites that sound nice, he goes really, really far in life, way further than he ever should have, and really interesting. Andres, have you seen it? Yes, uh, actually being there has been a favorite of mine for ages. I consider it one of the great films of the 70s, and... Um, I adore, first off, this film makes me laugh really, really, really hard at times, especially when he thinks, like, for instance, an elevator is a, is a room, and he's like, you know, let us take us to your room, and he's, like, confused, like, why am I staying in this small little box? Oh, it's an elevator. I got moved up to another floor. Or one of my all-time favorite jokes is um, when he's discussing the, the room upstairs, and they think he's talking. They're like, you know, he's, like, thinking about the end of his life, and they're like, oh, Chance, don't say that, when really he's literally talking about the room upstairs that's just like you know like a literal place um i i love the comedy in this but i also think it's uh, profoundly uh sweet and heartbreaking at the same time but yeah it's definitely it's so i don't know it's just one of those movies it just nothing in particularly special happens but that's fine because you're more interested in it's almost like a character study but it's just one of those things where you just look like everything's working out and it shouldn't like danger should be afoot. Like he kind of encounters a gang at one point, like when he first gets out of the house. But even then that turns out working out. I don't know. I just, Oh man, that just, I'm just, it's just amazing when you have an actor who can do what he did in that role. Cause I, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen a performance like that. Yeah, I would call it his greatest performance throughout his career. And I mean, there are a lot of contenders for that, but he was really good. Him not winning an Oscar is one of the biggest mistakes of the the entire history of the ceremony. And I know that um, a lot of people consider the blooper at the end of the film to be the reason why he lost Best Actor. I don't know. At the same time, I feel like um, while I can understand why, a fantastic performance to just be rewarded no matter what, so... I read a review of of being there. I think it was by Roger Ebert. And he said, I recently watched a political speech of somebody who was famous at the time. And he said nothing in that speech that Chance could not have said in that movie. And that comment has stuck with me because I think there's a lot of truth to it. Uh, We see a lot of politicians who just seem to have nothing going on behind incredibly vapid statements. Yeah. And it's interesting because uh, I almost feel like being there is kind of like a Forrest Gump before Forrest Gump where he just wound up being a part of whatever was going on. Whereas, uh, you know, the the thing is Forrest Gump is much more um, hyperbolic about it. Uh, here, you know, the guy's name is Chance, which is uh, obvi- for obvious reasons. You know, he he gets to where he's getting to by fate and fate alone. Um, basically, you know, this childlike naivety, which you know, really is the most open-minded and open-eyed response one can give. And everyone's trying to find something superficial or profound in what he's saying when really he's just admiring the little things which um, everybody's focused about the big picture but they don't really admire the world which you know you do it the way that he does it through the little things and i feel like there's something really really special about that 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 commentary also remember if you get some fancy clothes and never say anything important you can go far in life yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't. This movie is the it's the very definition of an acting vehicle. Mm-hmm. Except it's not one of those ones where that's its drawback. I'd also like to shout out Melvin Douglas, who did win supporting actor for this movie, and he was very grounded, and I think was a good balance to Sellers' character. 
Yeah, I don't know if I agree that it's an acting vehicle because to me that means like it, it only relies on that one element. I, I still think it's a stunningly well-written film. You also have Shirley MacLaine who's brilliant in this. You have a uh, uh, really great balancing of like uh, contemporary songs or, um, uh, you know, like the score itself. Uh, there's a lot going on in this film. So I just want to give it, uh, you know, I want to give it its dues in that respect as well. Uh, however, I get what you're saying, James. The central performance is the primary reason to watch it, and it's brilliant. And that I do agree. It's it's a performance for the ages. Yeah. So overall, it was a good pick. Good. Yeah. Okay, well, I guess I'll go next then. Um, so I was assigned by Andreas, Wait Until Dark, which is an Audrey Hepburn movie from 1967. And so the basic premise of it is... Um, there's some drug smuggling and some heroin is brought into the United States from Canada, Canadian content, um, inside a doll. And the doll somehow gets into the home of Audrey Hepburn, um, who is uh, married to a photographer and is also blind. So these criminals start to come after her. And except for very little bits of the movie, most of it takes place inside the, the confines of this very tiny apartment. And it's basically just everybody scaring the heck out of Audrey Hepburn for a couple of hours. And it is riveting. Just the way that they make use of those closed spaces and they build the tension. Um, it's really Audrey's, I think, only true horror film. And she excels. I would say that's the best performance of her career. And, you know, she could have made it over the top, but she really doesn't go too far with it. And what I see here is actually it's 1967 and 1967 was an extremely pivotal year for American cinema. And I think this is very typical. We are starting to see the beginning of the 70s when things got more subtle, when different artistic risks were taken. And so it's less Hitchcock, more, I don't know, somebody throw out a 70s horror filmmaker. Psychological. Uh, Brian De Palma. De Palma. Perfect. Yeah. It's, it's more grounded. It's less stagey and you can see a little bit of both. So I think the movie was very emblematic of that kind of transition. Yeah. Uh, I first discovered this film and my love of uh, Audrey Hepburn in general uh, is one of my all time favorite actresses. Um, when I was a teenager, I think I've gone through the story before I was into horror movies and I loved like gruesome stuff, gory stuff. And I was reading a, you know, one of many lists and a lot of them pointed out uh, this film as one of the most harrowing that people had ever seen. Now keep in mind, this was also the start of the two thousands. So I was a young teen. It was also a different time. I feel like there's been a lot of disturbing stuff or, um, you know, older films that have been given new light in recent years, but I saw this film pop up a lot. So I said, okay, what is it about this movie that um, is frightening or terrifying? And uh, I've got to say, like, a lot of movies don't bother me when it comes to horror and stuff. I don't know what it is. I'm desensitized. This one still makes me feel antsy and, like, you know, kind of, like, panicky, even though I've seen it countless times and I know what's going to happen. Um, there's something about this that just makes me feel like I'm drowning, this film. Yeah, it's very, very enclosed. I, I would call it claustrophobic, basically, because it is this dark, often dark apartment. Yeah, James, have you have you seen it? Because it wasn't your pick, but I know you try to take off each film that we that we highlight in this in this series. Oh yeah, no, I watched it. I actually really enjoyed it because it's like I like thrillers, but also there's this kind of noirish element, but it's almost inverted because we as the audience 
are constantly seeing what's going on, but she's blind. So she's got to put the pieces together herself without her sight and just watching the story unfold. It was, Oh, it was great. It kept me, it kept me like cons. It kept my attention the entire time. Like, I'm like, okay, what's going to happen next? Okay. This happened. What's going to hear? Oh, okay. (laughs) They've got this planned. And yeah, I I think it was just blind characters who are as resourceful as she is always make the best characters. Yeah. 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 Um, interestingly, she lost to my Hepburn at the Oscars that year for guess who's coming to dinner. One of her weaker ones. Yeah. Catherine Hepburn's fantastic, but I mean that film in general, I don't know. Like it's, fine i guess but uh it's it's a little sad because i feel like a lot of academy voters at the time perhaps and i could be wrong about this might have been under the apprehension or the misapprehension rather that audrey would be back again like okay well this is a new side of her uh you know new hollywood was starting to unfurl and obviously nobody knew it was going to be called new hollywood or that this wave was coming but something special was in the air unfortunately this was her last major film performance which is she would do a few things yeah, it's uh, it's unfortunate because, you know, that's one of those things that I always try to think about, you know, excluding, you know, that one bit part in like a, you know, that one Spielberg film that a lot of people forget about. I can't even remember its name right now. Robin and Marion. Uh, she was in that as well. Yeah. So like, you know, she's done some things, but like in terms of like leading uh, major roles, this was the last. So, it's, you know, I can't help but wonder what other stuff could she have been in like this? It would have, you know, the, the opportunities were endless. Yeah. Also, 1967 was such an interesting year. Like I said, it was really pivotal, and I think it really did mark the change from old to new. So Wait Until Dark fits really nicely in that little crevice. Yeah, to this day, uh, when it comes to that discussion, you know, the the turning tides of Hollywood, um, Hitchcockian films that are made by Hitchcock, which, uh, speaking of Audrey Hepburn, shout-outs to Charade, which is often considered one of those types of films. Um, So many different things, you know, stage adaptations to you know, to, to the big screen. There are so many different discussions, you know, just the best films of the sixties or in general, I don't hear this film discussed about enough. That's all I'm going to say. I feel like it's criminally underrated to this day. I'd agree. Fantastic. Well, I guess I'm last. So, um, my film, we're going to jump a lot more to the present. I feel like it's the only uh, 21st century film that we, that we are covering this episode. And it's right at the start of it. So uh, the film that James uh, recommended to me is Bully by Larry Clark. So Larry Clark is the same gentleman who, uh, with uh, Harmony Corinne, worked on that controversial movie Kids. So that's like the only film of his that I've that I've ever been aware of up until this point. So now I guess I've seen two. Um, Bully is extremely, extremely difficult to explain. Um, I feel like Larry Clark... Uh, not really in the same way that New Hollywood was, you know, when you're talking about Wait Until Dark or even something like being there, I feel like kind of qualifies as being a part of that wave. Um, there was something going on when the 80s and 90s were releasing a lot of very sanitized films that you had a lot of rebellious films uh, mixed in between, like a Pulp Fiction um, or like a kid's. So I feel like something like Bully was kind of working as an antithesis for what was going on at the time, especially when it came to the 90s and early 2000s representation of, you know, like the high school drama, whether it's on TV or in film. So the end result is something like Bully, which is an extremely taboo, um, extremely uh, like my my mind felt scrambled the entire time, James. 
Like I was like, there's there's a lot of stuff going on here that I don't think would fly today. It's legitimately difficult to watch, to be honest. It is. Uh, in short, I mean, I can't. I, I really can't say much about this movie. But in short, basically, you're looking at, um, you know, youths and how they are, um, how they deal with the different acts of bullying and harassment and abuse. Uh, from varying individuals. I know the title refers to like a specific bully in you know, in general, but the idea is uh, everybody is abusive in their own way. And I, again, I don't know how much more I can say about it, James. Well, this is actually based on a true story. Oh, it is. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like heavenly creatures only with more chaos. Wow. I had no idea. Yes. Yes. Th- this actually happened. I think, I think they're a little bit, I think they're maybe a year or two younger, than the the actual real life people, but yeah, uh, I actually picked this one. As you said, it's difficult to watch, and I picked it because of the challenge because it's fairly deadpan in the realm of of movies about young people, and it's one of those rare films that just actually shows the like horror of what could potentially happen when you have people like Bobby Kent, who was a a, a legitimate sociopath, and just all the people he affects and it's like, you know how he treats his best friend who he's known forever and he just sort of accepts it and, or, or just, you know, the murder scene in general, just how straight to the point it was. But yeah, I I just found this movie just to be very fascinating because it is one of those films where it's like, you know, is there, it's not meant to entertain, but it's not necessarily there to teach a lesson. It is just, just raw and uncut. And, uh, Roger Ebert actually gave it four stars. Oh, I didn't wow. know that. Yeah, and and that's one of the reasons is because he, he, I think he said some of the fact that it calls the bluff on a lot of teen movies that deal with this sort of thing. And yeah, yeah, you're right. It is something that probably wouldn't be made today. There was this kind of unique chaos to the late 90s and early 2000s that I think is reflected in this movie that would not be replicated now. Yeah, there's a, the early 2000s is a really strange period. Yeah, because early 2000s is also when uh, Gus Van Sant's Elephant came out, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that came out, the I think, a year later. Yeah, so there's something about this time period that just evoked um, a lot of like very visceral filmmaking. But Larry Clark in general, I guess, uh, you know, it's not like he came out of nowhere again. He did Kids. Uh, he did Another Day in Paradise as well. Um this was kind of his thing. So I feel like if somebody wanted to tell the rawest version of this story, um, I guess it would have to be Larry Clark. Yeah. He was also one of those directors that started as a photographer. And I always find like photographer turned directors really interesting. Cause they, they have a very specific eye. It's like how like Kubrick was a photographer before he ever directed movies. It's like, I don't know, just people who handle just like stills, and translating and then going into movies is, I don't know. There, there's just, I think there's a certain mastery that goes into that element that is easily translated into film that a lot of like just straightforward filmmakers can't really capture. I think they're uh, hyper aware of how to get the, uh, how to get the results that they have conjured up in their heads. Whereas people who, um, who aren't photographers are artistically savvy when they come to, you know, creating films or writing for films. Um, they might try to come up with a lot of stuff that just isn't feasible or they don't go about it the, the, the ways that are intended. This feels like a bit of an advantage where it's like, okay, I know exactly what I want to get and I know how I'm going to get it. So 
Um, yeah, to your point, Bully is a very aesthetically sound film. All right. Anything else to say about Bully? Um, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a tough one to talk about. That's the thing. It's a tough one we, to talk about. Like, we can, can move really on. go into it. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, is, uh, it is an interesting James pick, as, as always. <laughs> um, for our collective pick, we have... Um, the Sterile Cuckoo. Yes. Uh, Rachel, please uh, tell us why you chose The Sterile Cuckoo for us. Well, um, when I picked this, I did not realize Liza Minnelli was going to be presenting Best Picture of the Oscars this week. Let, uh, let me just add that. So it's especially timely, and we love Liza. Who doesn't? So um, she's always been a major favorite of mine. And when I, I've known that her first Oscar nomination was not for Cabaret. It was for The Sterile Cuckoo, which I think came out in 1969. So I was like, early Liza? Yep, we're good. We're signed up. And it's an interesting film. Uh, what did you guys think of it? I thought I thought the movie overall was okay. It felt like a really long episode of a television show from that era. But Liza's performance definitely makes that movie. Even though her character was driving me crazy, this was a masterful performance. Yeah, that's interesting because she's annoying, but you still sympathize with her, which is very hard to pull off. I, I found she had a lot of the same energy as in Cabaret because Sally Bowles was exhausting too. Um, yeah, to me, this movie is really, okay, you know how when you start out as an adult, like, going to, um, going to college or going out into the working world or whatever, and you think you know everything, but you're actually dumb as a brick? That, I think, was kind of the point of these two characters, because, oh, they made so many objectively bad decisions the whole time, but they were young, and it was like, they're, it's Liza Minnelli and this other student at college when they're very young, and they fall for each other. And they do not belong together. They're completely incompatible and they do not see it. And guys, we have all been there or known someone who's been there or something like that. So that's where it resonated with me. For me, I understand exactly what, what James is saying. So when it comes to the uh, the films of Alan J. Pakula, um, the only uh, film of his that I like absolutely adore is All the President's Men. But then again, I feel like that's driven by its screenplay, which is one of the best in the history of, of cinema. Uh, something like Clute... I feel kind of similarly about where it's like, I love the performances, but I'm not entirely sure what the tone of this film is or what it's trying to achieve. I feel the same way about Sophie's choice where again, I watch it for Meryl Streep and not really much else. Um, in this instance, which is actually his, uh, directorial debut, I believe. Um, first and foremost, yes, I have to agree. Liza Minnelli is brilliant as Pookie here. Um, she reminds me a lot of one of my other favorite characters of all time, and that's Poppy in Happy Go Lucky, which is played by Sally Hawkins. Um, I love the film, but yeah, it's a similar type of burst of energy where if you knew this person in real life, you might find them annoying, but there's something about how um, Mike Lee films Poppy that you're like, I love this person. And to Pakla's credit in this film, she could have been very annoying. And that, this is entirely on Minnelli that she's not annoying, that she there's something enduring and likable about this character. But there's got to be something from the cinematic uh, directorial eye as well, where it's like the way that she is shot, she doesn't really get on my nerves, which she easily could have. Realistically gets on people's nerves in the movie. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. like Poppy as well. Like She's meant to be annoying, but that's a very tough line to tiptoe when and a lot of filmmakers and TV show creators don't understand this line. You can make somebody annoying without annoying your audience. It's tough to do, but it's doable. 
Yeah, I think definitely for Liza alone, it's worth watching. But other than that, it's pretty much like a lightweight first romance story. Yeah, um, I guess because she's like the main reason to discuss this, I have to go back to Liza. Um, while her Best Actress winning performance at Cabaret, which is still like the greatest performance she's she's ever done, and it was it was quite deserving, there's something about the dramatic acting when she plays Pookie in this film. There's just something about it. Maybe it's because she's putting on a front for the rest of the film. She's trying to be likable, um, this burst of energy. But then when you see her, you know, her true self come out and her vulnerability, there's something about it that really, really got to me. And I feel like it's some of the most understated acting because um, nobody talks about this film yet. One of the reasons why you, you wanted to watch this film was because it was her first nomination as Best Actress. Mm-hmm. And she was pretty young when all this was happening. Like, she was pretty new at, at acting. And, yeah, she really pulled it off. She, her character is so insecure. And I think that's the difference between her and Sally Bowles a few years later, is this level of sort of insecurity and ordinariness that just wasn't in this glitz and glam movie three years later. For the record, this movie's not a musical for any fans listening at home. <laughs> no, it sounds like it could be the sterile cuckoo. It, it sounds like it sounds like a musical. It does. Actually, let me see if it's ever been adapted. Give me a second. <laughs> it's the okay. kind of thing that seems like it it would be adapted into a musical yeah. or could easily be. But I don't know. It seems mostly forgotten. So no, I don't think it ever has been. But it, I I do think that it has mostly been forgotten today. Like I don't think either of you guys had ever heard of it. Nope. Yeah. Nope. Um. Oddly enough, even though it's not a musical, its original song, Come Saturday Morning, by uh, uh, Fred Carlin and, Do- and Dory Previn, uh, was nominated. So, again, if you were just looking at some, like, cliff notes about this, and you saw the name, and you saw Liza, and you saw it got nominated for a song, you could be like, well, that's another musical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pretty much. It's not a musical. Not even close. <laughs> I think the only thing I wanted was a little bit more details about the relationship with her and her dad. Yeah, they kind of hinted at it, but didn't really dive in. That's something that I feel like um, the the director does in general, not playing all of the cards. So it's like something similar in Sophie's Choice, where it's like we could be focusing on this big picture, but we're kind of focusing on small bits of it. Um, Clute as well, where it's like it's named after the Donald Sutherland character, but really it's... Um, it's Jane Fonda who steals the show. And she actually added, wound up winning an Oscar for this film. I feel like it's just something that, he, like a tendency he had in general. So I'm not surprised that the Sterile Cuckoo has it as well. Yeah. Well, that's it for the April Smorgasbord. So what we like to do at the end of this episode is we like to give, instead of weekly recommendations like we typically do, this is where we reveal our next picks. But before we do so, you got to find out if you're just stumbling upon us, where to keep listening to us? Rachel, where can we be found? We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the K-Cut. We like to post little tidbits. Uh, if you go on our Twitter, you'll see a lot of complaining about the Oscars. So, yeah, <laughs> uh, have fun with that. Uh, yeah, if you need that catharsis, we're here for you. So, um, I'm going to get into the collective pick. Uh, it's my choice this time uh, after the fact, but we're going to get into our individual picks first. So uh, I'm going to be recommending something to James, James to Rachel and Rachel to me. So who wants to go first? What's mine? Okay. Okay. So okay, I'm excited. Christmas. 
So, James, um, I'm trying to pick something that not just I like, but something that I feel like you might like as well. A lot of your picks for the smorgasbord have been very interesting things, whether they're taboo or controversial or just some sort of uh, some sort of um, you know electricity that that is emitted from these films. And I feel like an example of this that I particularly like. Have you ever seen Dario Argento's masterpiece Suspiria? I have seen Suspiria. Ah, uh, this is the first time that's ever happened. <laughs> I've actually watched the original and the remake in like the same like day or two when I when I watched it. I, I've got another another question for you. <laughs> um, have you seen Dario Argento's '80s masterpiece called Opera? I have not. Okay, so opera is less seen than Suspiria. I feel like Suspiria is the main one that people have seen, even though some of his other films, like um, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, get a shout out a lot, or Deep Red. Uh, opera is very interesting. I feel like it's um, it's almost very Brian De Palma in tone at times. So I feel like that could be right up your alley. It's it's very similar to Suspiria. It's extremely excessive. Um, scares and gore and violence um it's uh it's a giallo film uh through and through so that's where you're gonna watch opera by dario argento awesome okay rachel what am i gonna watch um so i thought about this for a while i've got a list of about a dozen films to pick from for you because you've seen so many movies that i just write it down whenever you mention you haven't seen something and so I thought about it, and I think a movie that you would really enjoy is 1981's Trances, which is a Moroccan music documentary. And for anybody who follows Films Fatale, yes, that did rank very high in my world of movies rankings. So I hope you enjoy it. Absolutely. So um, I, I edit everything that gets submitted to Films Fatale, so I've seen this name pop up Every single time, you know, the, when you covered it, when it talked to your first ranking of all of the, the world of movies films, and to see it rank again at the very top over some films that I absolutely adore. So I'm not going to lie. I'm very curious about this one. And um, I'm absolutely looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Also, how are we already picking for May? That doesn't feel right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, already. Uh, that's time for you. I mean... Yep. Anyway, let's let's move on from that, that very sad thought. Alrighty, I guess it's my turn to give a suggestion. So as Andreas mentioned, I always I always try to keep things interesting. Um I decided to go complete 180 from what I've been doing because like my last few suggestions have been kind of like intense challenging films. Uh, I actually know both of your next picks that I'm giving you, and uh they're they're kind of challenging in a different way. So for Rachel, for this next smorgasbord, I am assigning you the 2001 cult classic exploitation parody film, Pootie Tang. All right. I've heard of it, but I've never seen it. It was written and directed by Louis C.K. Oh, man. Before he became, like, super big. That's interesting. Okay. I didn't know that part. Well, I will definitely... I'm looking forward to it. It's, um... See, it's kind of funny with the Oscars happening because this is actually based on a character from the Chris Rock show back in the day. Oh, good timing. Yeah, every, everything's great timing. The Liza thing, this. And Wanda Sykes is in this as well. Oh, no way. Yes, Wanda Sykes is in it. It's, it's, it's one of those movies that was just annihilated by critics on release, but over the years gained a cult following, and I love it. It's, there is never a shortage of laughs, no matter how ridiculous this film is. All right, bring it on. Okay, so uh, 
we've got a documentary. We've got a giallo slasher film. We've got Pui Tang. To make this completely varied and have zero synergy, my collective pick. So um, I feel a little bit guilty about this, but I feel like it's going to be very good. Um, this is a bit of a precursor because I've never, I've not announced this yet, but uh, after I'm done all of my TV lists, I'm actually going to be covering every single Palm Dior winner on Films Fatale. And I would like the two of you to help me with that process with at least one of the first films that I catch that I've not seen yet. So are either of you familiar with the, the Palm Dior winner of 1962? It's called O Pagador de Promesas. And I'm sure I butchered that. Uh, no, I'm not. No. So this is the first and only Brazilian film to win. It's a film by Anselmo Duarte. And I don't even want to say a single thing about this. It sounds so interesting. And yeah, again, it's um, uh, the English, uh, the title in English is the given word. So um, to me, this sounds a little bit like something that maybe Bresson or Tarkovsky would have made, um, you know, but again, this is 62. So this even precedes a lot of what Tarkovsky did. So I'm extremely excited for this and I hope it's very good, especially for, for all of our sakes. So um, those are our picks. Hooray. That was the K cut. And now we are going until the L cut and until next cinematic smorgasbord. board.